Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Here's, a, I'll just get specific. Um, all the female characters were helpmates to men. And if I have said nothing to my grown daughter, Ariadne, your goddaughter, I've said, honey, you weren't here to please men. Hey, so uh, everyone on my Facebook and other channels, I am talking with a very old friend of mine, Andre Debuse, third, I guess, right, Andre? I guess, yeah. And uh, and he and I go way back. Um, I don't know how long, Andre, how long have we known each other? I was trying to figure it out based on Austin being born, and he's how old now? 28. I think we've known each other about 29, 30 years. That's what I think, 29, 30 years. So we go back, and our families are friends, and so forth and so on. Um, so I don't come as a neutral observer of Andre Third's writing. Andre is a very well-known author, perhaps one of the most successful American authors living today with books like House of Sand and Fog and then his memoir, Townie, and so forth and so on. But I want to take advantage of the fact that Andre and I have understood each other's journeys and uh, start at a place that is not related strictly to, to Andre's literary output, something more personal. And that is that um, I remember when Andre was starting to write Townie and he was working on it, I had written a memoir of my own uh, journey, as it were, um, called Crazy for God about growing up in the evangelical subculture and leaving. And in that memoir, I kind of chose to tell the truth as best as I could about some of my family's deficiencies and my father in particular. Now, Andre had a very famous father as well, who was a writer, a short story writer, Andre Debuse Sr. I had a famous evangelical leader father. There, our lives are very, very different. Andre grew up in Haverhill, Massachusetts. I grew up in Switzerland in this little mission compound, but in writing my memoir, I kind of made a break with my family and my past by talking about what it had been like to journey away from that evangelical subculture, both politically, emotionally, but also away from some of my father's, um, should we say, temper and abuse of my mom and said hard things in the book. And I remember Andre read that and we started talking in the context of his book. So what I want to talk about a little bit today, at least at the beginning, is that um, both of us have had a similar journey in that we both come from families where we've had to distinguish ourselves from that background. You, because you have kept your family together in a way your father did not keep his family together, and me, because I've changed philosophically and in many other ways. So I'm going to start with a question to you, Andre, and that is that 
um, as you now gain some distance and your father's passed away, it seems to me that your life and lifestyle with your family and your concentration on your children and your wife and your mother-in-law, Mary, who was a dear friend of mine who passed away recently and the way you took care of her, you've made some choices to not only write honestly about your father and your family, but to be a very different human being. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, you are correct. And, uh, and, and for any of you who may be listening or, or watching who don't know anything about my father, he had many beautiful, beautiful qualities, as I know your father did, Frank. And, mm-hmm. and so I just have to preface it with, I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that someone hasn't read uh, my father's wonderful short stories. He was a short story master, also a fine essayist, uh, and maybe didn't know him. Uh, he had a thousand people at his funeral. Well, total assholes don't get a thousand people at their funeral. He had a thousand because he was loved by all of them, including two of his ex-wives showed up, uh, ex-girlfriends. And, but my father was, uh, as a young man, was, was absent. He, uh, my, my parents divorced when maybe after nine years of marriage, they were in their late twenties, early thirties. And, um, and I never lived with my dad after age 10. Uh, my mom, a single mom living. We we really lived in, you know, first world poverty. I say first world because we had a roof and walls. But, you know, I lived with a woman who had to choose between paying the rent on time or putting gas in the car to get to work or buying groceries or having heat. And and that really shaped me in ways that I wasn't aware of, Frank, until well, you and I have talked about this a lot, until I became, until I was given the gift of fatherhood and, and husbandhood, frankly. And you know, I've been happily with the same one for 33 years. And, you know, my father was never with a wife more than 10. And, um, you know, uh, and I'm not judging anyone who strays. Everybody's got their story. Everybody's got their path. But it's been incredibly easy to be monogamous and true to this marriage. And and I only say that because uh, I didn't see it. I uh, My my father wandered, it, it, you know, and, and in his defense, he got married when he was very young. My my parents were in 20 and were 19 and 20, 21. But, you know, you got par- you got married very young, too. And um, here's the thing. I don't know if I to be totally naked here. I don't know if I well, I'm about to go contradict myself. I was about to say, I don't know if I ever set out to be consciously a different husband and father than than my my father was uh, except now i'm going to contradict myself it was when we had our first child austin who's now 28 and a beautiful writer like his grandfather frankly um i began to feel just how not in my life my father was and you know of course i'm a i'm from a different generation that's more hands-on with parenting and taking care of babies and changing diapers and cooking and all that but um Here's an image, man, that comes to me, you know, I, you know, now the kids are grown and they have their own lives. And when they're home, the, the most joyous part of my life is when all three kids are in the house with or without spouses, girlfriends, boyfriends, whomever. And, uh, you know, Fontaine and I, like a lot of middle aged couples, will go to bed with our books and we'll be on either side of the bed with our reading glasses and our lamps reading our books. And, I, and, and you know, one of the kids will come in to ask about laundry or something or say goodnight. And and I can't tell you how many times I've turned to Fontaine, my wife, and said, God, I, I never had that experience of saying goodnight to my parents when I was an adult. I, I never had the experience of saying it, you know, even when I was in puberty. And so I am so grateful for how 
uh, differently, I've been able to raise my kids, mm. but I don't demonize the old man. I, I, he had his own complex forces that made him who he was, and and um, and he had a lot of beauty to him. But uh, he was not a present father uh, until until I didn't need him to be, you know, until my yeah. third. And well, you uh, know, I I knew your dad. Um, I forget when I met him, but it was back when I had first met you. I th- I don't know whether I met him before I met you when you were much younger, but uh, dad, um, you know, your dad reminded me in some ways of my dad because of his kind of presence. Now he had this terrible accident where, where he got his legs cut off because he stopped to help you know, a motorist, a motorcyclist. And that's a whole nother story. And, if, and I read some of his short stories before your forced book came out, Cage Keeper, I think it was. Um, and, and so there was a similarity. Now, you know, one area, w- which is, uh, again, something interesting about your life is that in addition to being a very different father and husband uh, to your dad, and intentionally, as well as, uh, you know, just that's how it's worked out, uh, without casting any aspersions on him, your own writing has taken a very different direction because if I'm correct, I don't think he ever wrote a novel. He uh, your father. He, his first book was a novel published in 1967 when I okay. think one or two or three years old. And he never did another because he discovered the work of Anton Chekhov. Yeah. And, and, then, and then he started doing all the short stories, which of course, for which he was phenomenally well known. Um, what's interesting about your career is that you know, in addition to getting out from his shadow as a writer and being compared to him because your first book, Cage Keeper, would have inevitably been, you know, people would have mentioned in the same breath of reviewing it that your father was the, the Andre debut senior. After House of Sand and Fog came out and you had tremendous success with that. Um, and now, you know, town me, I don't think, I think that the distinction between you and your dad is complete now. Um, and that, uh, you know, I mean, in, in a way, this is silly to say, but I, but you're you're the debuse people know about. And now in this conversation, we've got to talk about your dad as the lesser known writer. I'm just wondering, and then we'll leave this and move on to some other things. If the distinction between you and your dad in terms of family style, fatherhood, and then the distinction between writing, how you write, and also that your own career has taken off in the direction it has with such global uh, presence. Um over the years, as you look back, has that changed in your head how you feel about him, not just as a human being, but as another writer, but also just this idea of getting out from under our father's shadow, something I've spent time doing as well. Yeah, yeah, boy. It's a lot you're, the, you're the famous debuse now. I know this is a little uncomfortable, but talk about it. Well, it's, it's um, my my father wrote the you know he he was a master of the short story and and I'm mainly known for my novels which is a much more widely read and, and purchased form in our country and mm-hmm. abroad um, and uh, you know my father as you know was considered a writer's writer you know all great writers yeah you know, tend to revere his work it's wonderful and and as do I uh, I had a very interesting experience really rich experience that I, I may write an essay about a couple of winters ago. Um, I, I was at the airport and I didn't have the book that I was reading. And we had this reissue of my dad's stories come out in the, in the, and there was a copy of the bookstore and I, I grabbed my dad's stories, realizing I hadn't read them in quite a while, the ones in the, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm rereading my father 
on the plane back to Boston. When I get home, we have a huge blizzard and I'm just reading by the fire in my house. And, and man, I am reading the work of my dead father, who was a master of this form. And I am reading it as, as, as a fellow writer uh, who also writes fiction and I'm admiring what he's doing. I'm much more aware uh, of what he's doing on the page than I was when I first read it when I was much younger. But I'm also consciously aware that while reading these stories, I am older than the man who wrote them, mm-hmm. my father. Yeah. And now also reading these stories, because my father would write very derivatively from his own experience. I see, oh, well, that, that character is my mother, his ex-wife. That character is actually me. That character is actually my sister, Suzanne. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I had this incredible mix of, of, of emotions and thoughts and, and, and gratitude. I felt so grateful to be, to have him, to have had him as a dad. I, I felt really proud of what he created. But I also, uh, I have to say, man, there was a lot of, uh, a, a lot of his vision on the page that was shaped by the 1930s and 40s growing up in French, Irish, Catholic, Louisiana. And, and I was really aware of how different we were as human beings. And I was grateful that I was different. And, and and would you say that you're you, you're just to go into that a little more? Is that a sort of a generational style change? Is some of his writing feeling? I'm not trying to get you to say you know passe or something, but do you look at it and say you know I would certainly do that differently now? It has a sort of a stylization to it that is that is not something I would use in the present tense as a writer. Well, you, you know. Well, no, man, for me, it's less style. I, I, I think he writes very many, you know, many times in his career, he was called the Amer- America's Chekhov. I think he's written yeah. in a classic style that will last for generations. And yes, it is not remotely a contemporary sound, but I don't think I write in a contemporary sound either. I don't really have a clear insight onto to how my work reads in a larger sense. I will say uh, that I was really aware of how shaped he was. Here's, a, I'll just get specific. Um, all the female characters were helpmates to men. And if I have said nothing to my grown daughter, Ariadne, your goddaughter, I've said, honey, you weren't here to please men. Yeah. You were not put on this planet to give men pleasure. Yeah. They are here as equal spiritual beings in different bodies, period. Yeah. But, but my father really was shaped by his time. And, and I think, you know, so I'm reading this again, God damn, I'm glad I'm not like that with my women. Yeah. <laughs> And so there was more of that, more of a, a human thing than, but I have to say at the craft level, I was just moved and impressed and proud of him. Yeah. I, ha- I just pause here. I'm talking to Andre Debus third, the writer of House of Sand and Fog and the memoir Townie and many other books whose works have been put into film and all sorts of wonderful things. Andre and I go way back. We've known each other for 30 years plus. Um, I'm a godparent to one of his children. And uh, his wife is godparent to some of my grandchildren. And so there are connections here. Um, if, if you like what you're hearing, please like and follow this page. And note that these conversations I'm having in conversation with Frank Schaefer, talking with artists and writers, authors, uh, people who are bringing change to our culture and so forth. That said, I want to shift it a little bit because I know you also teach as well as write. Um, as a writer, something that I sort of have always... I, I know you write on a longhand and then you have it typed and you haven't gone to computers. We all have something we avoid or do or don't do. One of the things that I have avoided is trying not to be part of any 
writer's group type thing. I, I have readers I trust, starting with my wife, Jeannie, like you do with your wife, uh, Fontaine. I have people I submit it to. I listen to editors. I'll make huge changes. I don't think, you know, I'm arrogant in that. But I always have a fear of this idea of the kind of communal group approach to writing. It's one of the reasons I got out of the movie business. I got, you know, my films weren't all that great, but in addition to which getting script notes all the time from producers, how do you feel about the, I mean, you teach writing, but how do you feel about this whole writer group mentality well, yeah, man. and all the rest of it? Or how do you handle it? Or am I being unfair to that? No, I don't think you're being unfair. I, 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 we share so much in common in that way. I, I, first, let me back up. Most of us who are drawn to the page didn't grow up with a writer, father, mother, aunt, uncle, or cousin, or brother. Most of us uh, have never met a writer, and unless we go to a book sign, you never will. And I do think that that's, for, for example, the big thing that writing classes, MFA programs, writing groups give to their participants is a community of other people who feel drawn to do this weird kind of thing of going to a corner to, to try to write something honest about human beings with words and about human experience. And I, I really love people. I, re- I love that impulse in people. Uh, I'll tell you that I share it. I've never been part of a writing group. I tried an MFA, MFA program for a few months and dropped out because I really just wanted to be alone. I, I began to feel that, you know, I just don't think I'm going to learn any more than I'd learn on my own. And I'd rather do it myself. Yeah. And so I bring that same sort of, and, and, and let me go well, back to the old man for a second. He had a wonderful metaphor he shared with me a few years ago, well, before he died, which is now 20 years ago. And he said, he said, you know, we writers are like whales sounding, you know, when a whale sounds, it holds its breath and it goes underwater for long periods of time all by itself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think one of the hazards of a writing group is, is the experience contradicts what, I mean, whatever that expression is about the lesson. Uh, the truth is we need that psychic muscle to be alone with the work for sometimes years at a time mm-hmm. without encouragement, without a pat on the back. Uh, otherwise we won't go as deeply as we can. So I think it's really important to stay alone to your question about the teaching of writing. I project all of my feelings about this onto my class. I teach at the University of Massachusetts Lowell, undergraduates. And what I find myself telling them is, look, when you're you're writing something, you are pregnant with this book or story the way a woman is pregnant with a baby. You just have to get nutrients to that baby every day, whether you feel like it or not. You got to show up and, you know, feed the baby, let it grow, let it grow. And then you got to keep it in this dark, mysterious place for it to keep growing on its own. And, and for me, the, the challenge of, of looking at work too soon or having a group talk about it is mm-hmm. we're, we've got a six-week-old fetus. We're making an incision in the belly. We're parting the flesh. We're shining a light. It's not good for the baby or the mother. Or the mother's, yeah. more important, most importantly, I think, the mother's future ability to have more kids. And yeah. so, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's a pregnant woman metaphor, but I, I've, I've always felt that, that I get pregnant with a story and then I gestate it. And, and that takes time alone. And, but one more thing about that, I think that too often people understandably ask writing to make them feel good. They want writing as therapy. Well, you yeah. want to feel good, go run five miles, go make love, go make some bread, go paint your house. Yeah. Don't ask writing to make you feel good. I think if you're writing well, and you and I have talked about this, mm-hmm. you feel the opposite of good. 
You know, when I know I'm writing well, or maybe I might be writing well, I walk around feeling uh, vaguely inappropriate, nasty, ignorant, stupid, and wrong. Raw. My entrails yeah. hanging behind me. Well, I yeah. might have well today. Yeah, yeah. Writing, for me, writing and worrying are kind of one and the same thing. I mean, it's not a peaceful process. Um, one, thing, one thing that I think, I, because I've written a memoir and you've written one, I give a piece of advice to people that I want to hear your version of. They'll say, you know, I'm writing a memoir and I read your memoir and I'm worried about telling this about my family, whatever. The first thing I say to them is please understand that the first draft of a book is only for you. If you're already worrying about how the family will like it or you're trying to sell it or something, it's already, you know, you've lost this battle. You've got to write the book as if no one will ever read it, but you there's a, such a process called editing and second draft and third draft and fourth draft and an editor and people you trust. But now just think about getting on the page, what you need to get on with no kind of backstop. And that's another reason I hate writers groups. If you writing thinking, you know, Mary Smith and Joe, Joe uh, Debuse are going to read this, um, you're already thinking about their reaction. And then I just find I'm dead. You got to write it and, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Later, you can say, you know, I don't want to hurt my mom's feelings. I'll change the name in this novel, whatever it may be. How do you feel about that? I, I, I agree 10,000 percent. There's a wonderful line from an Aiden Gorderman novel where one character has an insight as to what sincerity is. She said, mm-hmm. oh, sincerity, never having an idea of oneself. Yeah. I think if there's any one central enemy to creativity, it's self-consciousness. It's very important. I, I believe that no matter what you're writing, whether it's a memoir, fiction, or what have you, I think every writer should should write as honestly and nakedly as if they're going to get shot in the morning up against the wall at dawn. Right. right. And, uh, and so let's look at the memoir. Well, the opposite of the word to remember, as you know, is not to forget. It's dismember. Mm-hmm. Chop, chop, chop. And so, so I'm convinced that what really sends writers to the memoir form or the personal essay form is they know what happened, but what the hell happened? Right. Remember that summer dad went to prison? What the hell was that about? And yeah. that's what the, the act of memoir is about. It's about putting the pieces back together. And so if you've got one eye on the mirror to see how you're doing, or you're worried about Joe DeBuse's hatred of adverbs, or right. what you know, your editor is going to say, you're screwed. You're not, yeah. you're not writing as deeply as you can, and, and you're not honoring... And, you know, I, especially with memoir, I'm convinced that, that what you have to honor is not, you know, 61-year-old Andre writing, but the 14-year-old who is still sitting there in his skin waiting for his microphone. Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, for me, I, I, my daughter Jessica wrote something to me the other day in the context of something that I'm writing on family right now. And that I found very uh, poignant. And I actually quote her in the thing I'm I'm putting together. But um, and I wonder how this impacts you. She was saying, she, Jessica, by the way, we're proud of our kids, so I can say this. She's now the CEO of, of an investment company in New York that puts together green energy packages. So she's done great. But she wrote an interesting thing. She said, people ask me, because she's 50, given I got Jeannie pregnant when we were 17 and 18, we just celebrated our 51st anniversary. And so Jessica will be 51 this year. We can keep track of her that way. <laughs> we're, and Jeannie, Jeannie and I, longer than we say because i remember when she was 18 all right yeah okay so now she's 50 so we're we're kind of getting there aren't we but anyway jessica wrote and said listen i i tell people who come to me and say you know 
you're a woman and, and you're a CEO of a company in New York. Um, tell us how you got there. And she said, they don't like it when I say, because my experience as a parent is what I'm applying to being a CEO of, a, of, an, of an investment company in that I learn more from parenting and I'm glad I had my children young. And she says, the conversation sort of stops. People get very nervous because you're not supposed to have children and mix that family with business. You know, you've got to balance career and children. And especially as a woman, you know, talking about parenthood, et cetera, et cetera, as being something useful that actually then had an impact on her career. When I look at your writing and I look at your life, here are the things I can't separate out. You're a carpenter and you're a good one. You build with your own hands and you respect people who build and not just people who write and think. And you're probably more comfortable with carpenters and plumbers and other people than you are with some of the fancy people you know in Hollywood, let alone in the writing world. Um, you're a father who really invests himself in his children and, his, and the relationship you have with Fontaine. I see that kind of connectedness to life as the key as one of the keys to why you're a really good writer i don't see it i don't see that as a separate part and your writing is something else you do i see these as very much one and the same thing yeah man i i well thank you for those kind words i we're people first we're human beings first at all times yeah writers we're cellists we're you know lawyers second third fourth whatever it is um but back to your daughter. Yeah, I, I my God, yeah. Uh, capitalism's done a real number on women. Yeah. Because if she wants to rise in this, what used to be the male world of CEOs, she has to still in 2021, not even talk about the fact that she's a woman with children and a mother. Yeah. Uh, to be accepted. It, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Um, uh, you know, yesterday I, I I hired a backhoe guy to dig eight uh, four foot holes for this deck I'm going to expand, and um, and I'm down there. We're, we're down there in the dirt together, and um, he probably voted for a man that uh, I would like to see in prison for the rest of his life. Yep. And but we had a lot we had a lot in common. We had a lot to talk about. We're talking about dirt and stone and wood and concrete, and frankly, then we were talking about his divorce and his kid and. Um, we're people first, man, and, and we're writers second. I I I am glad that um you know I, I grew up in a weird house and we've talked about this where Well and you've written about it in Townie too. Yeah, where I grew up in, you know, blue collar neighborhoods where, you know, also where half the recipients were on welfare and there's so many single moms, but we were the only house in the neighborhood that had books in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, best friend came over, saw the books, and, and he asked sincerely, we were 14 years old, are those real? And um, and so I've always felt an affinity for the working class, but I'm not of them. You know, my father is a professor and a writer, and my mother became a social worker. But it's also the only kind of work I've done, uh, other than teach at the college level, is is work in the trades. Well, I think one of the, one of the first things we did together was install some storm doors yeah. this was before your first short stories came out. Yeah, I keep thinking, well, there's the doors Andre and I put in. But, you know, I want to get back to this connection with family and writing, because it seems to me you write some very dark stories mm -hmm. and bad things happen to some of your people. But the, the fact is, and so the sort of 
love and connection and happiness that you have in your own life doesn't always come through. But I think it does in a, in a strange way. And correct me if I'm wrong. The fact that you live a life of love and caring and hope so intensely for the people in your life shapes your ability to write dark stories where that is absent, because you know the value of what your characters don't have. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, 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 what you're hearing, the hesitancy you're hearing in my voice, Frank, is just, uh, I'm so unconscious or semi-conscious about these forces that are at work. I'm sure you agree in your yeah. own work. A lot of this is unconscious. Um, I, I will say, I, I just finished a new novel around Christmas time. I'm revising it now. And uh, it, it is my most hopeful book. It's still a shit show where everything falls apart and, right. and character has to rise from the ashes of what once was. But I, I think you're right, man. I, you know, I think I am haunted by how terribly wrong a life can go. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I don't know, I don't want to get too psychological about it. I don't know how much my own childhood uh trauma is part of part of my dream world as an adult i do believe and you and i have talked about this that there's something quite divine going on in the creative mm -hmm. process that when you're writing openly and receptively and deeply enough you go far deeper than your own life circumstance in your own childhood yeah. you go go to realms that you've where you've never been in this lifetime yeah but um, yeah man i do think that uh let me tell you, here's an image. I, you know, I, I write down in a soundproof cave in my basement that I built. It's about the size of a jail cell and it's soundproof. And I have to go down a set of stairs and up a set of stairs to get to my kitchen to get more coffee, to go back down to the cave. And, and you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I'll come up to this beautiful, open, naturally lit paintings on the walls, beautiful hardwood floors, lovely island. I mean, this upper middle class, gorgeous home full of books. And I'll blink at it as if I'd somehow got transported here by accident. Mm -hmm. Or the coffee and think, how the frig did I get in this house? Yeah. Then I back down to my dark cave, writing about the, the characters in trouble who are a lot like the people I grew up with. And, yeah. uh, but I think you're right. The long winded answer is yes. I, I think that is the light in the, in the, in the, in the goodness and the yeah. Good luck of this, this life that allows me to go to dark places in my psyche. Yeah, and one of the things that interests me about you, and of course, you know, and I would guess most people interviewing you don't have that much of a connection, but since I knew your mother-in-law, Mary, who passed away, I think at 98 or 99? 99. And, and that was during, this was very recent. You couldn't have the funeral because of COVID. Right. But anyway, I knew her pretty well. Oh, and by the way, and I'm not making this up, my little granddaughter, Nora, who just turned seven, came to do a sleepover last weekend 
And she and I were sitting together and suddenly she, her little lip quivered and she cried. And I said, why are you crying? And she says, I was just thinking about how much I miss Mary. And I'm not kidding you. You'll think I made this up. Nora, age seven, says to me, I know I was just a child and she was very old, but you do know, boss, she was one of my best friends. And she burst into tears. This is a seven-year-old little girl. So this is what you feel when you have little children you love. And one of the things I love about you is that you're one of the men that I know who is as invested in his family as I am in mine, what we really care about. I mean, two lines are forming and all the books or whatever we do is at one. You know, and then Ariadne and her life and Austin and, and your, your mother-in-law, Mary, is in another. And, you know, we do our little cave thing and I have my shed I'm sitting in now. But, um, you know, in the final analysis, the work is always in proportion to the life itself. And you're one of the people I admire because you seem to have kept those, those priorities straight. And I don't mean that in some moralistic sense. I mean, in, the, in a better sense than that, of you actually seem to believe in the intrinsic worth of some things. They, don't, me, they don't all have to have a price. And I've watched you in your life live that. Well, brother, thank you. And, and likewise, I've watched you with yours. And you've been an inspiration to me in that way. You were a father longer than I was and before I was. I, I, I want to share an image with you that some, something I realized last year. You know, whenever I would uh, publish a new book, and you know, I've only published seven books in all these years, but I'm slow. And when they're published, they're done. But, um, you know, I always save a, a hardcover first edition for each of my kids. Yeah. And, and uh, I realized just like last winter lying in bed next to Fontaine, wow, I've never inscribed them. <laughs> Haven't I, ins I have insc I inscribed them to strangers, uh, many. And, and it came to me, my, you know, my old man was a beautiful short story writer, as we've said, he would, his peak uh, years were in his 40s and early 50s, and he would he would typically write about three short stories a year. He would always Xerox copies, and he would write a really lovely inscription to each of his kids, his ex-wives, his present wife, a friend, and pass them out. And I kept those for years, and a lot of them are in his archive in Texas. But uh, I knew my father's a father first and a father second. Yeah. I'm sorry, he was a writer first and a father second. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote all of that novel, House of Sand and Fog, in my parked car in a graveyard near our house yeah. uh, during summer, fall for three years, because I never wanted to tell my kids, be quiet, daddy's got it right. I didn't want them to ever even think about having to do anything around me and my little habit. Yeah. And so, honestly, in the last few months, I'm thinking, I, I got to sign those books. They're all grown now. They, they know that I'm a father first and a, and a writer yeah. third. I hope I'm a husband second, writer third. Yeah, I think one of the things is maybe one of the reasons you haven't done it is some kind of self-conscious thing where part of being a writer is putting on the public relations act. You're out signing books. You're being friendly with people you'll never meet again. I'm not saying that's fake because it's part of the job. It's like being a doctor and meeting your patient. But you don't you don't sort of take it home because those relationships are almost too essential to be writerly in. You just want to be a dad, you know, you're not the writer first to them. And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a, there's a sort of a block there. Um, I just want to pause for one second and say, again, this is, uh, we're having this conversation on my Facebook page. And I hope you like the page. If you like this conversation, I hope you tell other people about it. This will be recorded or is being recorded. So if you have a friend who you want to have look at this, or you want to watch it again, or you missed it, uh, please come to the page and watch or to other 
to other places. And I and um, I've got some folks with some questions here that I'm going to get to in just a second. One other thing I wanted to cover with you is is that uh, you've you've done uh, Towney as a memoir, and the rest are all fiction at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, are but you, are you looking? And the fiction, of course brings much, you know, of your own life into it. Are you looking at any more nonfiction in the future or are you just, you got this novel finished and so you don't even want to think about the next thing after that? Actually, man, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a collection of personal essays. I, I've probably written and published over 30 of them in the last 20 years. Yeah. And, and so that's actually a, a book contracted to, for me to deliver to the publisher this year. So hope to oh, deliver in the essays. But it, I love the essay form. I mean, as you know, it comes from Montaigne uh, and yeah. from the SAA to attempt or to try. I think yeah. it's an honest way to look at writing it at all. You Do know, any of these essays get into politics or are they all personal or are they social? I mean, what, what's in the essays? They're primarily personal essays, um, but they, they, of course, they veer out from there because, you know, what I love about the essays, you can talk a little bit more. And, and, and show your beliefs a little bit more. I love this line from Flannery O'Connor. She says, a writer's beliefs are not what she sees, but the light by which she sees. Yeah, that's great. So, so that comes through a lot, I think, in the essay form. Uh, I was asked to write an essay uh, for an anthology, just came out with Random House this summer, or this past spring, on Lolita, on reading Lolita for the first yeah. time. And, and I read it for the first time, Frank, I don't know if I told you, uh, in the Alps, while I was teaching a writer's conference with Austin and Elias, my two sons who are also writers. Yes. They, they took my class. And, but I was reading Lolita for the first time. I'd never read it and um, fought my way through the first few pages. I can't believe I'm going to be a pedophile in this book. Imagine yeah, I believe yeah. this is where I'm going to go. And I was so uh, taken by that. But to answer your question about politics or social in the essay, in writing the essay about reading Lolita for the first time in the Alps with my sons, I also got into how this, my most recent novel before the one I just finished is called Gone So Long. It's from the point of view of a man who has killed his wife uh, 40 years ago. Uh, and he, now he wants to see his daughter, his grown daughter before he dies. Uh, you know, we've talked about this, our, our hatred of male violence against women and kids, yeah. uh, well, both. And um, it was a really difficult book to write spiritually, psychically. And, and when it came out, it was at the height of the Me Too movement. And I had just met Harvey Weinstein right before news of his ugliness came out. Mm -hmm. I had shaken his hand uh, before news of his, you know, serial uh, crimes came out. And what I write, in the, I, I regret not having punched him in the face or worse. And so, so Which, by the way, I want to add, knowing you and also you've written a little about this, you have upon occasion done things like that in your youth. Your yeah, no, youth. I, I, I became a really I was a violent young man. I, yeah, I was a vigilante. I hate I hate cruelty. I hate injustice. Uh, I, I became a very angry kid. But I was also in a mill town where there, there were a lot of guys like me. Um, so my point is, I love the essay form, and that that one particular essay, I do get very political about about uh, women and men, and through the lens of having read Lolita for the first time with my beautiful sons, who are respectful of women, treat them as equals, and are yes, right. And by the way, are terrific young men. I mean, I love your your boys; they're just great. Yeah, well done. 
Thank you, sir. As I do, you're beautiful kids. Do any of your kids write? I, I know that. Um, well, John and I wrote that book on the, our Marine Corps experience together. And then, um, and he could keep writing. My agent came after him saying, you know, you are a writer. Why don't you keep going? But he's doing other things. Uh, they all write in the way, you know, educated, interesting kids do, but nobody's wanted to do what I do, uh, you know, too many ups and downs maybe, or maybe they have, they'll come to it sometime, but um, it's not on the, it's not on the books for any of them right now. Yeah. Whatever way it comes out of them. That's it. One, I, I want to get to a couple of people here who have um, been following this and uh, we have some questions. Um this comes from Christine. I never met my father. He walked out when my mom, mom was five months pregnant. My question is, is it harder to understand and hate a father who abandoned his children or harder when you were brought up with a bad, indifferent father? Well, well, first, Christine, I, I, I think you should write about that experience. Um, well, let me say, my father was not a bad father. He, he did get to a level of indifference once, once they left. He, uh, he was just elsewhere. Um, he wasn't a deadbeat dad. He would, you know, pick us up on Sundays, take us to a restaurant, drop us off. But it was a very much a 70s divorce. Um, I don't know. I can't answer that for you, Christine. I, I, I think it's something you should explore with words. You know, I do believe that... Um, I do believe that human beings are naturally creative. I think that we're supposed to make things with our hands. I think we're supposed to, to make things all day. We're not supposed to do something uh, in front of a screen all day, ironically, as we're on this screen. Yeah, as we're all on the screen saying about screens are bad. Yeah, but, gonna, yeah go ahead. I thought I, I, I'm taken by Christine's question because the question itself, I think, is really fertile ground. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, and you and I have talked about this, brother, but questions are much more useful than answers. In fact, I run away from people who have all the answers. I, I tend to gravitate yeah. with people who have questions. You know, Faulkner was asked late in his life, what's the main thing a writer needs to, to do what you've done with words, sir? And he said, well, it ain't talent. He yeah. said, I think it was, but it's not, it's curiosity. Mm -hmm. His exact phrase was to wonder, to mull and to muse why it is that man does what he does. And if you have that, Talent makes no difference whether you have it or not. So, Christine, I think you should write yourself into that question. I, yeah. I think there's something there. Um, Peter makes a comment. He just says, I love his book, Towny. So that's a compliment from Peter. So thank you, Peter, for that. Thank you. Yeah, it's a great book. Um, Diana asks, in what case would you recommend a writer to do an autobiographical novel rather than a memoir? I'd love to hear you address that too, because there's a lot of you in Calvin Becker <laughs> and Portofino series, uh, Saving Grandma, um, but I'll address it. Then I want to hear what you have to say. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, uh, who's, who's the person who asked that question? This is a question from Diana. Okay, Diana, thank you. Uh, look, I, I, I think you just have to try and see what happens. It, it took me about 20 writing years before I realized, maybe 25 years, that I tend to do better creatively when I go far afield from my own life experience in fiction. It, 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 so that if I'm, if I'm basing uh, a, a novel, say, 
too closely on the events that I've lived and basing characters on people that I live with. And this happened. So it's going to happen in the book. It's just felt really stale and stagnant for me. But I know many writers who can do beautiful work with the same circumstances. Um, Towney came, my memoir, Towney was an accidental memoir. I was not trying to, I was not setting out to write a memoir. I was actually working on another essay, this form I really loved. And, you know, I'll finish a novel and I'll write an essay. I'll finish a short story, I'll write an essay. And um, I'm working on one right now. Yeah. And, um, and I was working on an essay about my sons in baseball. And the question fueling the essay was, wow, baseball is so fun. And once they began to play ball when they were little, I was, you know, taking them to games. And I, you know, I said, well, how come I didn't play baseball? This is fun. And as I worked my way into that question, um, my curiosity about my own life brought me to what I was doing instead of playing organized sports, which is, you know, moving 12, 14 times before I got out of high school, living with my single mom in tough neighborhoods, all the violence and drugs and alcohol and sex too young, like 11, 12 years old. And, um, and it led me to 500 pages of what I was doing instead of baseball. Yeah. But it, it, Diana, it finally came, I finally found a way to write about my life. Cause I, oh, let me just say over, I do not exaggerate three separate times, three years each for nine writing years. I tried to write all of that as a novel, three separate novels that all failed because of that stagnant staleness that I was describing. Mm -hmm. And it, so it finally came as straight, not creative nonfiction as Andre and not some, some character. So, but I, short answer is who knows? I, I think it's all intuitive and try it either way and see what happens. But Frank, I want to hear you talk about Calvin Becker. Cause there's a well, lot of you in that boy. There's a lot of me in that boy. You know, my first novel was Portofino and then it was followed by Saving Grandma and then Zermatt. And I wrote them out of order, but it starts with a boy who's a 10 and finishes when he's 16. And it's a trilogy. You know, the events draw on a missionary family living in Europe. And <clears throat> it's a work of humor set in Italy in the era of La Dolce Vita. So these rather uptight Calvinist American missionaries, evangelicals are in Italy at, you know, at the same time that Fellini's wandering around and all the rest of these people. Um, and so there's a lot of comedy there. But I found at the time that I was able to work through some of my own anxiety about my journey away from evangelical Christianity. It wasn't so much that it was fictionalized as opposed to a memoir, but I was able to do better as a work of humor and make it gentler, not in the sense of trying to be kind or thinking how people would take it, but it was easier to come out of myself as humor rather than to come out of a, uh, of a place of kind of well, I'm journeying away from this because I'm against something. So the, the humor, you know, my, my uh, editors all felt it was very gentle and very kind to whomever, whomever the parents were. And of course, since my father was a cult figure, not occult, a cult figure, a guru to, in a kind of an evangelical Protestant cult, of course, some of his followers hated the books because they felt they thought they were too close to my parents. Whereas I felt that they were very different than my real parents and if you had known them. So, you know, there's a liability there. You get, you know, you, you get blamed either way if it's too close to reality or not far enough away. But I, I think for me, the distinction was addressing those subjects as works of humor in Portofino, Saving Grandma and Zermatt, rather than straight up in, with the seriousness that, for instance, I wrote my memoir later. Yeah, crazy for God. Can I address that? Because it, well, first of all, they're beautiful books, and I love those novels, and I'm, I'm really, you. well, I, you know, I, I just adore them, and I, 
I'm really envious of your ability to to write humor, which I've still found a hard time doing. Although my latest book you haven't read yet might might get there a little bit. Um, this woman writer, oh God, a novelist I respect. Her name will come to me at three in the morning, but she said, all writing is hard. She said, but writing humor is the hardest. She says, because we're all on the verge of tears anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But I want to say something about, about because especially for those who might be listening or watching who uh, will attempt a memoir themselves or attempting one now, I do think that one, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, Frank. I do believe that one of the the, the biggest hurdles to face when you're writing about your family, say, is writing about your family. Yeah. How do I, how do I write honestly about these people I come from, these people I love, don't always like them, but always love them? Uh, how do I write about them without betraying them? Mm-hmm. And so my first draft of Townie was full of all that street violence that you alluded to and and I sent it to my editor and I said, like, I was writing an essay, but it looks like I have a, a, a memoir. She said, yeah, it does. But uh, didn't you live with people? Where's your family? I left, I left them out. I said, well, I, I don't know where the line is. I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to shine a light on their privacy. I'm, I'm just writing about myself. She said, but isn't that part of your story too? Yeah. I was right, but I didn't know what to do about it. So that night I was at a literary gathering and one of my friends, I, have you read, read Met Russo, Richard Russo? I don't part. think so. I might have. I don't think I have. He was a lovely man. He's become a close friend over the years. So he's there. Um, he had not yet written his own memoir elsewhere. Uh, and I told him what my editor said. And, and Rick Russo gave me the best advice that I want to pass on to anyone who could use it. He said, if it were me, I'd ask myself, am I trying to hurt anybody with this book? Mm. Am I trying to settle any scores? He said, if the answer the if the answer is yes, then he would not write it, or he would write it but not publish it. Right. The answer was no. I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm just trying to capture through the subjective lens of my own emotional memory what it was like for me. Mm-hmm. Then I would write it. And as soon as he said that, I knew that I wasn't trying to hurt anyone. I was simply trying to capture what it was like to be. Uh, a boy in, in tough mill towns in the 70s with Watergate going on in Vietnam, limping to a finish and no fathers around, et cetera. And, and then the strategy was, OK, but I'm only going to write about my family's experience when it intersects with my own. And what was I leaving out of my life? I was leaving out that my sister was raped at knife point by two men, which I can say publicly because she talks about it in a very healthy way, I think. I left out that she was dealing drugs and my, my brother was being sexually abused and on and on. Um, I left out a lot of important stuff. And um, so the strategy was, okay, if I'm walking by my brother, my 13 year old brother's bedroom at four o'clock on a Tuesday, and I hear the sounds of his female art teacher in there having sex with him, which was pedophilia. Um, I'm going to put in the moans because in the hallway, those moans, they're part of my life. Yeah. The other side of the door is his business and he can write his own memoir. But I remember at that age thinking, well, um, he's, he's too, he's, he's too busy to hurt himself. Well, he's, you know, I, I remember feeling all sorts of things that had more to do with my own story. And so I left it in. But I, I just want to throw that out. I think Russo's advice is really- I think that's a really good point. But yeah. you know, it brings up something. And now I'm just uh, sort of cutting through the fourth wall here and just talking to you as a friend for a second. You know, I've been working on some projects that 
where I sort of go further in denouncing where I came from, but for a very good reason. And that is when I watched the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, and I saw them praying in the name of Jesus in there, and I follow that back to my father's work and my work in the emerging anti-abortion movement in the 70s and 80s, there's no question that dad and I were involved in something that became a very public evil. And not just in the election of Donald Trump, but the entire takeover of the Republican Party by far-right evangelical fanatics who want to turn this country into theocracy. So the problem is that after writing Crazy for God in the memoir and my novels and so forth and so on, I've lived to see something that you haven't seen. And that is the final act, or maybe it's not the final act, of, the, of who I was as a young man is no longer private because I helped my dad as his nepotistic sidekick back in those days in the evangelical world start something. We never saw what was coming. But there's absolutely no question that we played a part in, in what I regard as an actual threat to democracy. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of trying to unpack that in things I'm writing and working on, and this venue here, Facebook and all these other things, um, it goes way past mea culpa in terms of behavior as a young teenage father wishing that I had been better. That's a different kind of self-revelation. Now I'm starting to look at things where um, I have some responsibility and my father did. We were part of something that didn't just sort of go wrong. It became a threat to the country I live in, to my children and grandchildren. And when you start unpacking that, and I'm still working this out, Andre, I don't know, but I'm going to ask your advice on this. You know, at that point, it's not just what's happening behind the bedroom door. The gloves come off because you're now fighting for your life. And we're fighting for the life of this country. And we were on, not on the wrong side of an issue. Yeah. You know, my family was on the wrong side of history and we did something really bad. Wow. And that is, that is we, we helped lay the groundwork for the merging of the Republican Party and the far right evangelical fundamentalist movement with all its homophobia, its misogyny and all the rest of it. And there's no way to duck that. So I have a regret about my own life uh, but but then in terms of unpacking who my father was, if Trump hadn't been elected, this could have all faded away and yeah. it would have been, OK, I'll just leave it at the memoir stage. But it's not fading away. We're in a fight now. So yeah. and this isn't anything to do with this interview. I'm just telling you this and asking you what you think about it. Well, I am moved. I am so moved. I It didn't even occur to me. But of course, you know, having read Crazy for God and knowing you, of course, yeah, your own life has intersected with that crime against the, our democracy in January. Yeah. Uh, I, I have, well, first, I, you know, I, you don't need any advice from me. You're, you're a truth-seeking artist, and you'll, you'll do it. You're probably doing it beautifully as we speak. I don't um, know about that, but I'm just telling you it's a new wrinkle for me. Well, well for me, man, it, it, I experienced maybe a shadow of this or a ripple of what you're talking about creatively in, in that novel Gone So Long that of mine that came out in 2018, where I'm trying to embody, you know, you know, I never even raised my hand to one of my sisters when we were like 10 years old. I mean, I, to, to write from the point of view of a man who stabbed his wife to death in a jealous rage when he was a kid, and now he's a dying man in his 60s, it was really difficult to withhold judgment. Um, but I think, you know, it's bumper sticker Christianity, and I'm not a Christian, but, you know, hate the sin and not the sinner. I, I have every I think every confidence in your ability to just go after the bad behavior 
without eviscerating your dead father. There's a way I know it's that- not just dad, it's me. Because yeah. as a young guy, just like you look at things you did when you were young, yeah. it's as if you're reading a story of somebody else's life, because man, am I not that person now? Mm-hmm. But when I was in my teens and my 20s, you know, I was I was greedy for access to power. I got I liked the money we were making. I did some, you know, there was some sincerity there that soon, soon turned into bad things. And then I got out, thank God, and with help from Jeannie and all the rest of it. But that said, it's weird to be 68 years old, 69 this summer, and look back at what you were doing at 18, 19, 20, 25, 30, and realize that you were part of something that turned really bad and has had terrible consequences. And, and, and until Trump and now the storming of the Capitol, I, you know, it, I didn't ever really see that play out almost like a, you know, I don't know how to put it, like a piece of theater. I think about a line from, have you read This Boy's Life by Tobias Wolf? Wonderful. Yes. Right? Of course, great short story. Good. Yeah, it's great. And he has, he has a wonderful line in that book. Memory has its own story to tell. Isn't that great? So I, I don't know. I, mean, I just can't wait to read what you're writing because I know for, I just know with all my being that you're going to write it as honestly. And uh, a, a memoirist whose name escapes me said also, if you're going to write memoirs, you should be able to sue yourself for libel. Yes, right. Exactly. <laughs> you're going to write the kind of book where you should be suing yourself. Yeah, exactly. And, and but, but if you're not, if, if any of us are not willing to do that, we shouldn't be yeah. writing because you, you must be prepared to hang yourself out to dry. And and Richard Yates, the great. Have you? I just, by the way, read, reread Revolutionary Road. Have you read that novel lately? Yeah, long time. No, oh. not for ages. Frank, reread it. I My, should reread that. It, I don't it, know how long you have time to write novels and read them. You know, you're crazy that way. I, you you you're so prolific, but also just, uh, you know, you're such a writer writer. <laughs> Between your reading and your writing. The newspaper, and I and I don't go on social media, and I don't have a cell phone, so that helps me. But. Um, but there's a, Yates said, look, if you're going to write about yourself, you're going to be walking that fine line between self-pity and self-aggrandizement. Yeah. And, but, but I think it's a line that you've walked razor sharp and beautifully in all your career, whether it's memoir, uh, nonfiction or fiction. I think you're always, you've always walked that line. And I think about Hemingway, he wrote a letter to Maxwell Perkins at Scribner's and he says, Max, the job of the writer is not to judge, but to seek to understand. Yeah. And as long, you know, we, we, we always talk about this, but as long as we're truly seeking to understand, especially if it's our own younger selves, yeah, right, with, with no, uh, no self-aggrandizement, no self-pity, just trying to be effing honest, yeah, all will be well. <laughs> you may get sued by yourself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you may get sued by yourself. <laughs> I have I have a, a, a question. So the, the no cell phone and no computer stuff, and you write by longhand, I attribute some of your success as an author to that because there's a kind of purity to what you do that I don't think is available to people that are A, part of writers groups and do it as a social activity. And B, it's certainly not available to people who have started and finished their career on keyboards and laptops and Google and all the rest of it. It's just too fucking distracting. And their good writing isn't coming from from a lot of those sources. Well, you know, I I, I won't cast aspersions against. Uh, look, I know that that a lot of people get a lot of joy and connection from social media. I have never, and this is my first time on a on Facebook, 
ever. And, and, I, and I've never looked at a Facebook page. Well, I've looked over Fontaine's shoulder a couple of times. I, I, th I find it very difficult to be a contemporary or to write about contemporary times without asking my kids how to use a cell phone. Yeah. I, I don't have a cell phone. I've never sent a text. I've never seen an emoji. I've never seen a meme. Um, I do have a laptop, uh, and I'll, but I'll, I'll begin the day with poetry and then reading poetry. And then I'll write longhand pencil for, you know, one to three, three and a half hours tops. Um, and the next day I begin by, by listening to music and typing the handwritten work into the laptop, turn it all off and sharpening my pencil again. I, I, I just feel that so much of the time, this digital world is static on the radio and, and that, and that the job of, of we of we writers and, and people who are trying to create art is is to listen and to see. One of my favorite lines from a Mary Oliver poem is pay attention, be astonished, tell about it. And, and you know, we're all walking around in, in the state of what social psychologists call continuous partial attention. Um, I, I, I I have I, I've chosen to to not be in a state of continuous partial attention unless I'm drinking too much or yeah. I'm trying to talk to someone while cooking. Yeah. Right. I think it's very important to be present and to not let the static interfere with the music we're trying to hear. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's a good place to start to wind this down here. I just want to tell people that if you like this conversation, please share it. Follow this page. Uh, like it and um, let people know so they can listen to this interview. These In Conversations with Frank Schaefer, a series I'm doing that will eventually also be a podcast um, talking with artists and change advocates and activists and others like Andre. We have more coming up. You can always check it out on the page. And Andre, I'll let Elizabeth's last question here be how we wrap this up. So when you've answered this, um, the compulsion to repeat the past is so powerful, Andre. How did you learn to separate your own identity from the sins of your father? Well, I guess by make, creating my own sins, and, and, and I mean that sincerely, uh, yeah. screwing up in, in my way. Um, boy, uh, Elizabeth, thank you. The honest answer is I don't know. I, I do know that um, the parts of my father that I, I admire, his, his compassion uh, for others, especially people he'd never met, his generosity, his bravery, I, I, I try to honor. Uh, but I've really, uh, here's what happened. Becoming a husband and then becoming a father saved me. Mm. It gave me a clarity that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And when I go to a room full of people who've read my books, I'm always surprised anyone's read anything I've written because I don't think of myself as a writer. I think mm -hmm. of myself as this guy who's got these kids and this wife and this family. And I, yeah, and I, by the way, and your friends think of you the same way. Cause I, I never, I mean, I think of you as a writer when I hear you've been on Oprah or something, but the rest of the time, it's the father of Austin that had to use mass med because you and Fontaine were so broke, you couldn't afford anything. And he's doing radical surgery and almost dying as a, as a child. And you're so invested in that. And you know, and you guys are having kids before you're quote ready and have money in the, you know, all the stuff people don't do who are trying to be careful and safe and all that. And you, you, you always, Andre, have voted for the human experience first and all the kind of bells and whistles second. And, you know, you're, I just think that 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 is the basis of your writing, even when you're not writing about that. 
because it's a set of priorities you have in human values and they bleed into the page every time. That's where you come from. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. I, I, I want, uh, can I end with Lao Tzu? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Soften the light, become one with the dusty world. Peace, brother. Yeah. Thank you for Peace, me. brother. Hey, much love and thank you so much. This has been great. And uh, see you soon. Love you, man. Yeah, love you too. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.